Hello everyone, welcome to Dan's Nose History Hit. It's Easter weekend here in the UK. I hope you're having a, a nice rest. You've got a couple of public holidays here, bank holidays as we call them. And it's beautiful, hot, sunny weather. Unseasonably warm, which is pleasant, but also a gnawing reminder of the coming climate crisis. So there you go. Strengths and weaknesses to the weather there. For this episode, it's it's a long, meandering walk around one of the world's most remarkable heritage sites. A few months ago, I was lucky enough to go to Annick Castle in Northumberland, and I was shown around that ancient castle by none less than His Grace the Duke of Northumberland, Rafe Percy, who just written a beautiful book about the castle. It is a castle that has acted as a hinge of fate. English and Scottish armies have fought beneath its walls. Civil wars, civil strife has seen the castle taken and retaken on countless occasions. One of the highlights of the podcast that you're about to hear is when I asked the Duke of Northumberland to try and enumerate the, the, the deaths of his ancestors. And to be a Percy, to be a member of the Percy family, to be an Earl of Northumberland in the Middle Ages was exceptionally dangerous. As you'll hear, the 15th and 16th centuries, very few of them died in their beds. They died for their religion, they died for their king, and they died for their ambition on the battlefield. This is a, an extended podcast, so make yourself a cup of tea, go for a long walk, go for a jog, kick back, enjoy the holiday weekend, and uh, enjoy Rafe Northumberland taking me round his majestic castle, which of course most recently has not been a battlefield at all, but the set of the Harry Potter films. That castle has it all. Once you finish listening to the podcast, go to History Hit TV. We've got a special offer on at the moment, three months for just one pound or dollar for each of those first three months. So three months for three pounds or dollars. It's effectively free. It's the cost of a ride on the London Underground. It is incredibly cheap for what we're trying to do is build the world's best digital history channel. Several thousand of you are in there now watching as I speak. It is very, very exciting. We've got a big summer. We're planning lots more films at the moment. We're going to ask you for your input. So please head over to History Hit TV. Use the code POD3, P-O-D, three when you check out and you will get two weeks free and then three months for just one pound euro or dollar a month here is rafe northumberland enjoy i feel we have the history upon our shoulders all this tradition of ours our school history our songs this part of the history of our country all were gone and finished and liquidated one child one teacher one book and one pen Change the world. We're now standing outside the gate of the Barbican, at the very outside of the castle. Presumably, this is this is all quite a new addition. The keep was the original Norman stronghold, was it? Yeah, the keep and the outer walls were all the original Norman stronghold, probably built at the beginning of the 12th century by the De Vesey family. So this was built really when the Percys came into play from 1309 onwards, and. It was built as a separate fortress, so it could, it could hold up and survive even if the rest of the keep had, and the rest of the castle had been overcome. And it's a pretty strong structure. It's got a massive gate on, on the outer side. It's got a, a moat in the middle with a pivotal drawbridge, which you'd have to get by, and then a portcullis, and then another pretty hefty gate on the other side. So while you were trying to get through all those, you were being bombarded by hot oil and stones and arrows and everything from the ramparts on the inside. So you were very unlikely to get through. Should we head in now? We'll go through the gate. We'll just have a quick look at this motif up here, which was 
put in by the fourth Earl of Northumberland in, a, in the sort of 1470s. He, he had a tough time. He actually restored the Barbican and he fought on the Yorkist side at the Battle of Bosworth, but failed to engage his troops at the right moment, which inevitably ended up with Richard III being killed. And he was then murdered a few years later, trying to, trying to collect taxes for Henry VII. Oh, so I was going to ask, are you sure that wasn't a sort of clever move at Bosworth? He deliberately, he may have tried to say that after the fact that actually he was, he decided he was going to throw his lot in with Henry Tudor. Well, well nobody quite knows, <laughs> but, it, but it is slightly assumed that he, like, like the Stanleys, sort of turned on Richard III at the last moment. We will come to your remarkable family who've been present at every turning point in British history. But we're now inside. We've gone through the gate. We're now in the sort of killing zone, really. Three-storey high walls before another gatehouse. And you would have just been dead if you'd been in here. Everyone throwing projectiles, as you say. You would have stood a chance, would you? Because you had the pivotal drawbridge here, a moat underneath, and then the portcullis, which you, you can see the grooves of the portcullis there. If I owned a castle like you, I would secretly be hoping that Brexit was so bad we'd all return to a state of nature and then you could actually see this bad boy in action. You could. It would be quite fun, wouldn't it? Right, where are we going now? We're going up onto the ramparts now. Okay. So we're going up onto the ramparts here. So you could pretty well start throwing things down on the front side to deter them, and then once they'd got into the sort of courtyard down there, um, they were dead meat. And so why, let's look at quickly at the geography. Suddenly you come up here, you realise we are on, geographically we're on some quite high ground as well. Is that why this was originally chosen as a, a place of fortification? I think probably, Dan. I mean, there was, a, there was probably a Saxon fort here before the Norman Conquest. And we know that there was a fellow called Tyson who, who owned it before the Conquest. And his son was actually killed at the Battle of Hastings. And it was then given to William de Vesey, who was a, another Norman knight. And the de Vesey's held on to Annick for the next 250 years until we came along. And then, you're, so your ancestors arrive. How, how do they get hold of the castle off the, the de Vesey family? Well, the, the Percy's basically set up business in Yorkshire, mostly in the East Riding. And there are various members of the family buried at York Minster and Beverly Minster. And the first Lord Percy of Annick was actually one of Edward I's principal generals. And when Edward I died in, what, 1307, Percy refused to follow Edward II very much. And he was in a lull in hostilities with the Scots. He, he bought um, Annick from the Bishop of Durham, who was supposed to be looking after it for the de Vesey family. That, that's it in a nutshell. And are there any other castles or, or grand houses around Britain that we think we can chart one family's ownership for the last 700 years? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, Dan. I mean, not many, certainly. Does that come with, does that come with an awesome response? I mean, do you, does this, does this place fill you with joy or do you think, God, I've just got to keep it going, keep it, because I can't be the one who lets it all fall down on my watch? No, I do love it, but it is, it is a labour of love and there, are, there is scaffolding here 365 days a year, practically every year, because it's built of local sandstone, which doesn't weather particularly well. And although some of it still dates back to the 12th century, there's, there's quite a lot of it that has had to be replaced over the years. Oh, so it's a bit like HMS Victory. It, it's, it's, it's the same building in spirit, but there's been a lot of repointing. Absolutely, yeah. And, and quite a lot of rebuilding too. The, the, the keep itself has been rebuilt at least twice in the last 200 years. Right, let's go.
Okay, so we've come out of the Barbican. Mm-hmm. So here we are in the outer Bailey, and and you'll remember from your history that Cromwell took six thousand prisoners at the Battle of Dunbar, and he kept them here for a night, and then marched them on down to Durham. Um, and as your brilliant podcast states, half of them died from eating raw cabbage in a field near Morpeth, I think. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't your cabbage. It wasn't our cabbages. No. <laughs> um, so we'll go. We'll go left here, and you'll see that most of the outer walls here are 14th century, built by the first and second Lords Percy of Annick. And then we come to the Abbot's Tower there, so named because one of the Devesi constructions was Annick Abbey, which was a pre-Monstratensian abbey in the park about a mile away. And when the Scots were marauding, the abbots would come and hide over here. Yeah, we should talk about the ge- the geography, the strategic geography, because your your family, this whole area, famous for this endless low level and occasionally high level fighting between England and Scotland on the border. Was this castle ever properly invested and, and properly besieged? Yeah, it was besieged often, and and it fell on various occasions. Often surrendered before being completely destroyed. I mean, even in in the wars, of the roses it changed hands five times in the last sort of two or three years of the wars. So it's, it's seen quite a lot of action. And then it's, been, it's an unlucky place for the kings of Scotland, isn't it? A few of them have been either killed or captured here. Yeah, you can see that wood in the distance there is the site of the Battle of Annick, where Malcolm III was, was killed on his fifth foray into Northumberland to try and gain a bit more territory. He and his son were both killed there in 1093, something like that. So looking, so we've got the abbot's tower there where the abbot was hiding. And then we've got a stretch of 12th century wall there, which is being repaired at the moment, as you see. And then in the Middle Ages, this wall connected with the keep there. There was no gap. And so that was taken away in the 19th century in, in the last major reconstruction of the keep. That tower, the Falconer's Tower, was, was placed in its, in its stead. And that... Had, in towards the end of the 19th century held quite a lot of electrical apparatus because there was a hydro scheme on the river which fed uh, electricity into the castle to lighten up the place. Well, let's talk about your family and it's sort of, again the military function. And to what to what extent were you in charge of the of the northern frontier? And was that the job of your ancestors from their stronghold here? I think part of the reason why we were allowed to buy Annick was that that we were pretty tough and considered as the principal barons in this part of the world. So we were supposed to hold the peace. Most of the Percy lords and earls were wardens of the Eastern March, which is the sort of bit from, got on the, well, on the eastern side as far as Berwick. But in some cases, wardens of, of the whole march. And yeah, there was only one or two who didn't get to that particular position. So it was a fairly, fairly important role to try and keep the peace. Well, talk, let's talk about a few more of them as we go around. So we're now going on the south side of the Barbican, down the, the perimeter wall, which was, it was all being restored now. It's mostly 14th century, but there's quite a bit of 12th century on the other side. And we're coming to a clock tower, which was rebuilt in the 18th century. And then we're going through a large gate into another 18th century and 19th century group of buildings which were mostly stables with a large banqueting hall on the left and a coach house on the right and we probably can't get into the coach house but if we can I'll show you the coach which was used at the coronation of Charles X of France in 
1825. Oh, the, oh, yeah, the last Bourbon. The last Bourbon, exactly. And there he is. Oh, look, the door is open. Here we go. Amazing. And the third Duke of Northumberland was the special ambassador to George IV at the coronation. So he had this carriage commissioned, which is quite magnificent. And I used it at the weddings of my two daughters. There, I will put pictures of that on the Facebook page to accompany this podcast. That is absolutely magnificent. So, yes, you've got buildings from all sorts of different periods. I mean, that's worth asking. What, when so many of the great castles of England were destroyed and left to become attractive romantic ruins, why is this one so, so dynamic and kept building, expanding right the way up to the present day? Well, that's not quite right, because really from the sort of end of the 16th century onwards, this was no longer the seat of power for the Percys. Um, they, because of their Catholic tendencies, they were made to live in the South uh, by Elizabeth and Cecil and then subsequently James I. And Annick really fell into pretty good dereliction. And after the death of the 11th Earl in, in 1680-something, it was really unlived in for another 70 or 80 years. The last heiress was called Elizabeth. And she was the daughter of the 11th Earl of Northumberland. And um, he had no sons, and he died very young doing the grand tour in Europe. One of the few earls who died in their bed, incidentally. Uh, and it was her granddaughter, uh, another Elizabeth, who inherited the whole, the whole Percy barony, although the estates in, in total had been split by her grandfather, the sixth Duke of Somerset. And that's a, a long and complicated story. Anyway, she inherited Annick and the barony with it, married a, a Yorkshire baronet called Hugh Smithson. And with the barony came quite a lot of mineral rights. Coal was becoming more and more valuable. And they, they had quite a lot of cash to, to, um, to play with. And so they decided to move up north again after this long period and, and make Annick their home. So they got Robert Adam to do the, the, the house and Capability Brown to do the landscape and create basically a palace in the north. So the Percys were back in Northumberland. The Percys were back. And then Smithson, who changed his name to Percy and became the first Duke of Northumberland, he was a great friend of George III. He was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and quite political. He and his wife basically regenerated the whole, the whole estate, modernised the agriculture, got the coal mines working and had a you know, pretty good time up here. And then the next sort of second, third and fourth dukes inherited those coal mines which became more and more valuable and were able to do far more up here. Um, and the, the fourth duke then decided that the Adam reconstruction wasn't really suitable so he, he brought in Salvin, Anthony Salvin, to rebuild the keep again. And it is now more or less exactly as it was at the end of the 1870s. Your family kind of neatly skips from, from being medieval warlords to early modern and, and modern sort of exploiters of the mineral rights and sort of industrialists, really. Yes, but, you know, what luck to actually survive through that really difficult period. And, and thank God, you know, they, they went in the right direction. But if you think before the Percy, the male line died out, the estates included Petworth in Sussex, vast areas of Yorkshire, Cumbria. Uh, so what you see now, although it's pretty massive in modern terms, very small compared to what it was. 
so it's impossible really to overstate their their wealth and power in, in through that medieval and, and late medieval period of English history. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was acquired through marriage, but but a lot of it was given because of services rendered. Like, you know, we had Walkworth Castle just south of here, which was given to us by Edward III um, for you know really keeping the peace in here and fighting the Scots. Uh, <laughs> should be said that you've got excellent relations with your Scottish neighbours now. We do. Well, we've married into them for several generations now, so all is well. So here we've got Middle Gateway, 18th century arch, which was restored and rebuilt in the 19th century. And then we've got the rest of the outer walls now going down on the south side, down to a tower which was rebuilt in the 19th century, towards the end of the 19th century, which holds all the records. It's known as the Record Tower. And then a strange couple of recesses in the wall there, in the 14th century wall. And there was, I mean, in theory, there was a building somewhere around there, which was taken down by the 10th Earl in the 1640s, I think, just before the Civil War, 1630s. And then we've got a strange block of new walling there, which you see, which, which is known as the Bloody Gap. And there was, a, there was a legend that the Scots had managed to break through there. And then there was a really bloody confrontation. But in fact, I think we had, there's no sort of truth to that legend. In fact, there was a building there which was taken down. And it's always the way. It's always something prosaic, like sort of some subsidence or something horrible like that. Such exactly. a, so unfair. Exactly. And then we got a bit of 12th century wall there. And then the Constable's Tower, which is quite interesting because it, it's exactly as it was in the 14th century. Although there's a bit of bit of new stonework in places and that's where the constable of the of the castle lived and worked um, and he was quite important but since the since the end of the 18th century it has been the armory for the tenantry volunteers which was a, a small force set up by the second duke of northumberland in case napoleon invaded on the northeast coast so there were 150 volunteers, I think, and the, a lot of their weaponry was made and stored there. The Grand Armée would have had no chance at all. Absolutely. Is this one of the reasons that, the, that Cromwell left this castle without smashing it, smashing it to bits like he did places like, what am I trying to, Berkhamstead and stuff? Because, because it actually did have a, a strong defence, both coastal defence and defence against the Scots. It had a strong defensive purpose. Yeah, yeah, partly. I mean, he did order Walkworth to be destroyed, um, but, uh, yeah, Annick, I suppose, was important for billeting troops. And he, he actually billeted his troops here before and after the Battle of Dunbar. And interestingly, in those, those two octagonal towers there, which were built in Edward III's reign, you'd just see on the lower side there, there's a whole lot of dents in the walling, which must be musketry shots. And there are, there's quite a good grouping there. And there's another grouping a bit higher up. And... I can't blame Cromwell's forces for that, but it's, there's quite a good chance as they, they were here probably longer than any other force, getting probably rather bored, sitting around, not doing anything. So why not have a shot at the, at the towers? There's almost no period of history that this, this castle hasn't played a sort of, a, or borne witness to and, and played a kind of critical role to the chief protagonists. Yeah, no, Absolutely. And you have just written a lovely book about the history of the castle. When you're young, when you inherit these, or when you know you're going to inherit these kind of places, is, is there a feeling of, oh, God, I don't really like history? I mean, is, is this, did you always have a passion for it? Or is it finally when you own it and you live it and you breathe it every day that you just can't help developing a fascination with which bits of wall were built when? Well, I, I, th I think as a child, I always felt guilty that I didn't know more about it. 
And, you know, you were faced with great tomes of history books with no pictures in that, that really didn't, didn't suit my way of thinking. Um, I'd much rather be out sort of shooting rabbits or playing football or tennis or whatever. Anyway, so I decided that I would make it slightly easier for future generations to, <laughs> to get a good grip of their family history and the history of the castle. And thankfully, I've got an incredibly good archivist who has helped create this book um, and, and really modernise and improve on previous versions. And I suppose that's the other thing like, you forget. I mean, one forgets is that you're not just thinking, you're not thinking, oh, well, your ancestors have been here, but of course you're assuming and hoping that your descendants are all going to keep this going. So actually you've written this book and you must do things like, you know, sort of plant trees that you're never expecting to see mature, but knowing that your descendants will one day enjoy them and sit beneath their branches. Well, that, that's the hope. Dan, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you know, looking after the heritage here dominates a fairly major part of one's life. And, you know, you have to generate the revenue to be able to look after it because it costs a million pounds a year just to keep it standing as it is before you start thinking about other things. Get buying that book, everyone. Get buying the book. Right. Are we, uh, what are we doing now? What do we do? Well, we might just have a quick look at that bit. So we've got the Constable's Tower there. We've got the Poston Tower here. And there you can see those marks on the wall, which is where the bakery was in the Middle Ages. And then you had a slaughterhouse and a brewery. Yeah, I guess it's worth saying these big spaces, the Baileys, they would have been very, very lively. They'd have been communities during, during the medieval period. There'd been people living, your retainers all living here, bakers, blacksmiths all working away. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think in the, certainly in the 16th century surveys, there were about 150 people employed within the castle grounds at that stage. And even, even in, in the 18th, 19th centuries, there were probably 50, 60 staff living in the castle. Very nice. So we go down Poston Tower here, and then we've got the Sally Port down there, which is a sort of secret gate that takes you out of the castle if you want to escape or bring, bring troops in. Yes, because it's quite a difficult... We think of sieges that trying to sort of hermetically seal, bottle up the defenders. It would have required a lot of troops to really surround this place in strength. And if you have a little sally port here, you could nip out, break through enemy lines and to, with messages or, or receive reinforcements and things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was pretty essential. And it's actually very important now to, to allow us to take our dogs out of the place without having to go around several hundred yards of walling. So we're now on the gun terrace which was really rebuilt in the 19th century. And there are a few naval cannons here, which are, were captured at the Battle of Villermo in 1808, I think, by Admiral Jocelyn Percy, the brother of the 5th Duke of Northumberland. And then there's a few more naval cannons here, two large cannons which came from the battery at Almouth in William IV's reign. And then at the far end there, you can see that, that carving on the, on the Falconer's Tower there, which was put up in memory of Henry Percy VC, who won, a, won the VC at the Battle of Inkerman in the Crimean War. He was incredibly brave and, and managed to save a wounded soldier and various other members of his troop in a particularly bloody and difficult infantry manoeuvre at Inkerman. Uh, well, I've, I've read about him in the excellent book produced by another family member of yours. And it struck me reading that book that maybe the surname Percy was a, it could be a tough name to have because you did feel that unless you were showing 
unbelievably conspicuous leadership and exposing yourself to danger, you were people were sort of looking at you, going, "Come on, then you're from the, you know, you're a Percy." Mm, yeah, that 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 is the trouble. Um, I, I think I've broken the mold in that respect. <laughs> well, thankfully, we're no longer required. But during the First and Second World Wars, was that how did your family? Because obviously, that was obviously the graveyard of many an aristocratic family. How did yours fare? Yeah, well, luckily not too bad. In the in the First World War, my great uncle William was badly injured but not killed. And he won all sorts of medals there. Uh, my grandfather was in the trenches for a bit. And then he was pulled out. So no family members died then. But quite a lot of members of the local staff and, and people from Anik died. In the Second World War, my uncle George, my father's elder brother, was killed at, around Dunkirk in 1940. My father fought in the Western Desert and through Greece and Italy. But thankfully, he survived. Okay, now it looks like we're now walking. Is this, are we entering the, the main stronghold here? We are. We are entering the keep now, and we're going through. We passed the two octagonal towers built in the 14th century, and we just passed the portcullis um, sort of grooves, and we've got a couple of 16th century doors here. So these are actually these are from the 16th century because they're. 16th century. And then we've got the 14th century arch coming into the keep which ends with the original 12th century arch built by Eustace Fitzjohn, who was the son-in-law of, of the Devesi of the day. So let's just rehearse that because it's so cool. So the towers are 14th. Towers are 14th. The doors are later. They're 16th yeah. century. And then you've got back to 14th century wall. And then you've got the final piece here, which was from the original Norman arch from the 12th century. I mean that's just focus so cool. Okay, and then we hit where so now there's and then, a and then we still got we still got a little bit of 14th century stuff left. We've got the the draw well here, oh, which yeah. was fed fed by a spring wow. in the castle grounds. So it's a lovely huge old a, a sort of log with uh, with two great big wheels on either end, so you could draw the well. So this was a water supply right in the middle of the keep. This was the water supply right in the middle of the keep. That's a much later statue. That I think it's 18th century. Oh, 18th. I mean, honestly. I mean, look at it. And then really the rest of it is all 19th century. So it's 1854, I think, work started on the restoration and rebuilding of the main keep. And then the fourth duke who started it all, he died in 1865. And the work was carried on by his following. Right, we just walked through the giant door here into a room, I mean, covered, literally, floor to ceiling with weapons. Absolutely. Well, most of them are the weapons of the force that was brought about by the second duke of northumberland in case napoleon invaded off the northeast coast and they were given to the tenantry volunteers of which there were 150 in the force and there are muskets pistols swords powder horns and the whole lot and there's a few cromwellian suits of armor here as well and your ancestor was preparing to line up on the beach with his 150 tenants and fight to the last man against Napoleon? Well, I think there were a few more roundabout who might have come to his help, but <laughs> that was certainly the idea. But I don't think it was a particularly efficient force, and it's possibly a bit like Dad's army. And then we've got here, we've got the sword of General Lord Henry Percy VC, the, um, the hero of Inkerman. And then we go into another little anteroom, and then up the main staircase, which is all marble and porphyry. Yes, and it's, so it's worth saying you, you expect to be going to a medieval castle, but actually you're now entering a kind of 19th century stately home, basically. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the idea that the fourth duke had was to create uh, 
an Italian Renaissance interior within a medieval stronghold. And he sort of achieved it pretty well. And we're coming into the, the guard chamber now. And so I should ask, any footprint of the original medieval keep is, is gone? There's no attempt to sort of remain true to, true to that shape? No, not really. I think, I think he felt that the Robert Adam construction in the 18th century wasn't really suitable. So he built this enormous tower on the northwest side of the, of the castle, which acted as a main focal point. And, and that is more or less what we're in now. Some lovely Van Dykes and can letters because your art collection is almost as famous as the castle itself. So I feel like I need to sort of get a different bit of my brain going now and forget all my medieval military history and start thinking about my, you know, my early modern stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the fourth duke brought in a whole lot of Italian craftsmen to teach the local people how to do special wood carving, how to do... Uh, amazing ceilings and plaster work and uh, and he's achieved it but there were quite a lot of Italians here during the the 19th century just doing the mantelpieces all the amazing inlaid maple and walnut shelving and doors and it's quite a and remarkable thing paid for by the by the actually not the kind of an ancient medieval patrimony but actually by the the coal coming out of the mines nearby Yes, very much so. Yeah, the, um, the coal. Coal was a terribly important commodity in this part of the world. And you see lots of really lovely houses that were supported, and were created and supported by coal in this area. And uh, famously, Edward VII only had coal from Anik burnt in his fireplace at Buckingham Palace, didn't he? Is that an urban myth? Is that right? I had no well, idea. Well, that's what they say. That's what they say. <laughs> so... The art collection itself was really the icing on the cake of the fourth duke's restoration. He'd, he'd built this amazing construction and he needed something to stick within it. So he bought a collection, which was known as the Camuccini Collection, of a large number of paintings by Raphael, Titian, Lotto, Palma Vecchio, all sorts, Tintoretto. And he also bought a whole lot of other things like this fresco by Sebastiano del Piombo of the visitation. Do you have a favourite? I mean, because you're now speaking as a, as a knowledgeable about Italian Renaissance art, having just had a conversation about medieval military history. I mean, you've got to be a bit of a generalist. What's your, what's your, do you have a favourite of all, all the sort of periods and, and different lives that this castle's had? Oh, I don't know. As far as art's concerned, Dan, I'm a little bit of a Philistine. I love some of it. And I, I can't quite cope with the religious paintings. But some of the other stuff's wonderful. And there's a beautiful Turner, which we'll see, see later, which I absolutely adore. I've opened the room to the most beautiful library I've ever seen in my life. Tell me about this room. Well, th this was the centre of the Fourth Duke's, really, world, as far as the castle was concerned. It's not only a library with 16,000 volumes, all beautifully leather-bound, but it was also a meteorological centre because he was very key. He was an admiral, and he was very keen on lifeboats which he supported and this was made into a weather station so we've got a, a barometric pressure gauge there we've got a wind um, meter there and, and this was all fed to various research places nearby but it really it represents most of his interests so you've got you've got art on the ceiling there you've got ar archaeology got the sciences there and that's also represented by the busts on the three busts on the mantelpieces 
Shakespeare, Bacon and Newton. There's also a table football table in here, which is so it's a reminder. I mean, this is also, apart from anything else, it's still a family home for you guys. This is very much the family home. And this, this is the room we all focus on in, in the winter when we're all here. With a large TV at one end <laughs> where we all gather. Does anything come out when the tourists are allowed in? No. The booze, the booze cabinet, the, I imagine. The booze is closed, but the rest of it, the rest of it stays more or less as it is. We do, we do rope it off so they can't do too much. And then there's a little, little door over there where you can climb up onto the balcony and inspect all the other books. But some amazing books here going right the way back to the 14th century, including books on witchcraft. And there's even a thesaurus of dirty words from the Middle Ages. You know, you've got to remember that, that troops were passing by here the whole time. The royalist forces took over Anik. The Cromwellian forces took over Anik created an enormous amount of damage and there was no compensation. So, so Anik, that helped Anik to deteriorate for the next hundred years or so. Beautiful Van Dyke of Queen Henrietta Maria, Charles I's very unpopular wife. Yes, and that, that is the last Percy heiress. So she was Elizabeth, the daughter of the 11th Earl, this chap over there. She was married three times by the time she was 15 years old. The first husband died as a child. He was the son of the Duke of Newcastle. And then she was abducted by a Thine from Longleat and forced to marry him. And he was then murdered by another suitor called Königsmark. Um, and then she married the sixth Duke of Somerset, who was known as the Proud Duke. And he was incredibly pompous. And, and so that's when the old Percy lands were then hived off to her, her daughter. Yes, absolutely. The, 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 she could inherit the barony, but not the title. So the earldom died out at that stage in the 1680s and but she kept the inheritance and then the sixth duke of somerset didn't particularly like his daughter-in-law who was the wife of the seventh duke of somerset so he split the inheritance between her granddaughter and a, a grandson on the other side so he sort of recreated the Percy patrimony. Yeah. Absolutely. But the other, the other side of the family were the Egremonts, who then got Petworth, which was an old Percy house, and the Cockermouth estate in Cumbria and uh, Leckenfield in Yorkshire. Don't worry, it's okay. I think you, you've done all right. I mean, I think you've, you, you, ended up, you end up ahead there. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite glad not to have another large country house to look after, I must say. Yeah, we've, we've got a couple of canalettos here, one of Anik in the early 18th century, and one of Northumberland House, which was the family house just off Trafalgar Square, which was compulsorily purchased in 1873, I think, to make way for Northumberland Avenue. And it, you can see from this painting that it's in a pretty parlour state. It's got sort of bushes growing out of the battlements and uh, it's looking a bit rough and ready. And yes, the Northumberland House is beautiful. You should um, look that up. It's one of the when, when they landscaped that whole area around Trafalgar Square. That was uh, that was the victim. So you so you lost you lost some prime real estate there. Absolutely, yeah. It would be it'd be worth a bubble to now. It's quite interesting. The the lion, which is on the top of the middle sort of thing at the moment, it's now its own house. And at one stage, it used to face towards Buckingham Palace. But the Duke of the Day felt that he'd been slighted by the king, so he turned it round. And I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> Showing the king the lion's bottom. Down here we've got two paintings by William Dobson, who was really 
he took over from Van Dyck as the great portrait painter of that era. They are amazing paintings. I, I did, Dobson isn't particularly well known because he died when he was very young. I think he was only in his mid-30s. But these the three gentlemen on the right who look like they've done a lot of living. Yes, I think they're sort of bemoaning the end of the Civil War and the destruction of the royal royalist cause. I think that, that was the saloon or music room. This is the red drawing room, we call it now. And again, it's got an amazing ceiling, beautiful frieze, fantastic mantelpiece designed by an Italian called Nucci. These two cabinets are, are very famous. They were designed for Versailles, for Louis XIV. Louis XV didn't particularly like them, so he sold them. And they pitched up in a London sale room and were snapped up by, I think, the third Duke of Northumberland. And they're, they're known as the Cucci cabinets from the Gobelin factory near Paris. And they're by far the most valuable things in the collection here. Right, we're in the dining room now. Dining room now. We've got a magnificent pair of portraits of the first Duke and Duchess of Northumberland above the mantelpiece, which bears their coat of arms in the middle. Again, built by Italian craftsmen. And then we've got various family portraits around the walls. This, this one is the seventh Earl of Northumberland, who was executed by Elizabeth I for rebelling in the Rebellion of the Northern Isles. One of the coolest named rebellions in our history. They tried to put Mary Queen of Scots on the throne, did they? That's right, absolutely. Now, this is a good time to talk about, how, let's have a look at these portraits. How many of your ancestors, the earls, died of peaceful old age and how many on the battlefield or, or ex executed? <laughs> well, let's work it out. The, the first, second and third died in battle. Two, two of them in the Wars of the Roses. Uh, the fourth was murdered by the mob in York, collecting taxes for Henry VII. The fifth and sixth died in their beds. The seventh was executed by Elizabeth. The eighth was murdered in the Tower of London, probably on Cecil's orders towards the end of the 16th century. The ninth spent 16 years in the Tower of London. The tenth was okay. And the eleventh died young, doing the grand tour in Europe. And that was it. <laughs> that is extraordinary. And then the dukedoms, the dukes, all right, because they, they, were, they, had been, um, they were no longer a threat to the... Uh, no longer a threat to the government by that stage. The Dukes got away with it. The Dukes more or less got away with it. There was only one, my, my Uncle George, who was the ninth Duke of Northumberland. He was killed in, in battle in, in Belgium in 1940. Going back to the seventh Earl and his execution by Elizabeth I, a whole lot of manuscripts came up in Christie's a few years ago, and one of them included his death warrant signed by Elizabeth which I managed to snap up, and it's here in front of us. That's wonderful. That is the actual document. That is actually a copy of the document which we've got hidden away, but it is in that condition, and it has her signature there. Foreseeing always that no other execution of death shall be executed the said Thomas L. Northumberland, but only one to cause his head to be smitten off from his body and set up in the accustomed place within our said city of York. Yeah, they said the Seventh he could have renounced Catholicism and maybe survived, but... He, he didn't. He stuck to his faith and was later beatified. Well, how come I always think about the Percy's in that period? Why didn't they just lose everything? Why weren't all the lands given to other people? But how come they... Was there just something about these aristocratic families and the names that kings felt they really ought to rehabilitate the, you know, the grandson, the great-grandson, if they possibly could? I think that was partly true. I think a lot of it was luck, too. I mean, certainly, if you look back at a particular instance, the... Um, the third Earl of Northumberland was killed at the Battle of Towton 
1461. His young son was then looked after by Edward IV and brought up in the Yorkist court. And despite, you know, the Percy family being Lancastrians, he supported Edward IV and thought very highly of him. Well, I think when Edward IV died, Percy had to uh, cling on to Richard III if he was to survive, but maybe saw his opportunity at Bosworth to change sides and, and the rest has been pretty plain sailing. <laughs> After Bosworth, we've been pretty much okay. We, we haven't even talked about Henry Hotspur, who was pivotal in getting rid of Richard II and the elevation of Henry IV, but then turned against him. I mean, he was a, he was a Percy, wasn't he? He was indeed, yeah. He's probably the most famous Percy of all. So as you say, he, he actually supported Richard II and his father, the first Earl of Northumberland, was, was, uh, presided as Earl Marshal at Richard II's coronation. Um, and he was made Earl, I think, immediately after the coronation too. So he and his son, Harry Hotspur, and Hotspur's brother, Sir Rafe Percy, then spent the next 20 years fighting with Scots or the French and eventually got pretty fed up with Richard II, kicked him out, helped to bring Henry IV onto the throne. And everything was fine for a while, but it turned sour, particularly after the Battle of Homelden Hill, where Percy and Dunbar defeated the Scots under Sir Archibald Douglas. And normally, after a battle like that, you would pay for the, for the army by um, ransoming off the Scottish prisoners. But Henry IV insisted on having all the ransom money, which really annoyed Hotspur. Um, and at the same time, there were various things going on, including the fact that Hotspur's brother-in-law was imprisoned in Wales and um, Henry IV refused to pay a ransom to get him out. So the Percys decided to rebel and sadly were defeated at the Battle of Shrewsbury. <laughs> Very sad. Now, why was Hotspur called Hotspur? Well, he, Hotspur started his military career at the age of 12 at the siege of Berwick, where I think there were 40, 45 very brave souls holding out. And eventually Hotspur and his father managed to break through and they then had all 43 or 45 Berwick stalwarts immediately executed, which was the done thing in those days, I think. So he got that reputation. After, after the siege of Berwick, he, he had a strong military career. He's most famous probably for chasing Douglas up Reedsdale and fighting him at the Battle of Otterburn in the middle of the night when his troops were really too tired to, to go into battle. And I, I, I don't know if you know much about Otterburn, Dan, but, but it all started with a single, single combat outside the gates of Newcastle between Douglas and Hotspur. And Douglas got the better of Hotspur, who was furious. And Douglas pinched his pennant and then took his forces up Reedsdale and set up camp at Otterburn. So Percy, living up to his name of Hotspur, spurred his horse and army into action and followed them up Reedsdale and attacked them. And they were defeated, but Douglas was killed. And that's probably the most famous battle that he fought. Nobody really remembers much about Homelden Hill. But it was an incredibly important battle, and it kept the Scots at bay really until Flodden 100 years later. Were your family at Flodden as well? The, the Earl of Northumberland, the fifth Earl, was in France with Henry VIII at the time. But his brother and a cousin both fought at Flodden. Well, uh, 
that is really a remarkable tour around one of the most important uh, buildings of Britain, one that reflects every single period, including the 21st century, because this is, this is the beating heart of the, the Harry Potter franchise as well. It certainly is. I mean, we had, we had the first two films, um, the Harry Potter films here, and they were very popular, and Anik is still considered to be central to the, to the Harry Potter franchise, I think, which, which is very good news for us. I bet it is. How, yeah, how many people come to these doors primarily because of Harry Potter? It's a very difficult one to say, but, but it is quite interesting that it has maintained that momentum. And I think as, as new generations of young people read Harry Potter, they, you know, they, want, to, they want to come to Anna because they associate it with it. My daughter has never expressed a huge amount of interest in, in the work that I do, uh, despite being dragged along to lots of it. But when I told her I was going to the Harry Potter castle, well... There were tears at home when she had to go to school instead. Now, um, you've just written the most lovely book. What's it called? Um, I've written a, a book about the family history and the history of Anik called Lions of the North. And I'd be very grateful if you could buy a copy. <laughs> Please do. And it's available like all the books we feature on the podcast at historyhit.com slash books. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Very good. Thank you, Dan. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours. Our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith. 